I phoned my sister. I'm stuck in the barn and there's a big cat outside. Can you come and do something? And she laughed at me. I just froze. <laughs> didn't want to move because I didn't want it coming towards me or anything, something like that. You think, where the hell has that come from? Welcome to Big Cat Conversations. We speak directly to people who've encountered one of Britain's big cats. We also discuss the bigger picture. I'm Rick Minter, and thanks for joining me. Welcome to Big Cat Conversations. We are recording this episode in mid-September. We're going to have a walk in the woods and think like a cat and look at the views with guest Paul Ramsden. Paul was with us for episode 8 and for episode 28. So nice to have you back, Paul. Welcome along. Thank you very much for inviting me, Rick. It's a pleasure. Great. And we're looking over the Severn Vale from the edge of the Cotswolds, not far from Stroud. And in half an hour's time, we're going to be in a wood, thinking about where to put out trail cameras, thinking how a cat would behave in that woodland. But first of all, we're just looking at the scene in mid-September in Gloucestershire at the Cotswold Edge, near the Cotswold Way, in fact, but looking over to the River Severn, the Malvern Hills beyond in one direction, and the Brecon Beacons in the distance on the skyline in another direction. Nice weather. I mean, it's been a wet week. It's been a very dry, drought-ridden summer, so nature's just waking up after having some rains this week. But, Paul, it's your area we're looking at in the mid-distance, because you suss out that Gloucestershire Severn Vale, the flatland that we're looking over to. And can we compare it to this Cotswold Edge, the fairly steep edge of the Cotswold Hills? Yeah, Yeah, most certainly. What's the difference for a big cat? Can we start with the Cotswold Edge? I mean, my reckoning is that this woodland edge is busy in the daytime with mountain bikers and walkers and things but nighttime it's full of deer of course and the, the cat's going to like it the deer come down to the pasture so at that pasture edge where the woodland runs out the cats patrol that area for sure yeah definitely yeah, Rick, yeah. But your area is different so what's your take on the on the two different bits of landscape well my take on it if you were looking out across here now there's lots of greenery and there's lots of cover but in the winter time, the flatland doesn't hold enough spots for them to hide out the way of us. So all the crops are gradually going. When all these fields are high, a cat could walk in amongst them all day long and never be seen. And I also think there's a much more of an abundance of small food items in amongst the fields. Young rabbits, pheasants, other released birds for the shoots and what have you, young foxes. It all lives in amongst the crops. And I think the cats come down from this area and go into the flatland because... It is an abundance of baby animals for them to feast on in the summer. And if there aren't no baby animals, there's lots of insects and even birds and nests and what have you. And they've got as much cover in the summer out there that they need. Whereas in the winter, there's no cover. You can see for miles across that land. If something was walking in the middle of one of those, even from up here with a decent set of binoculars, you would see it. So I think in the winter time, come autumn, now about September, I would expect the animals to start retreating to the edge and also feasting on bigger food items like the deer that you mentioned and what have you, because all the young animals, the dumb have already been cold and what have you, and the rest of them have grown up now and learned to evade predators. And this edge is a really interesting winter and summer kind of areas for the cats, no doubt about it. And it's a cycle of the food as well. Like I was saying, all the baby stuff down there through the summer, there's no big sit down meal, but you're walking through a buffet and helping yourself as you go. So yeah, that is the difference between up here and down there. And I don't think many people actually look down on those areas because it doesn't seem like you could conceal yourself there. But as we know, it does happen. There's plenty of little field corners and and spinnies and woodlands and ditches and things for a cat, a stealthy cat, to manoeuvre along. But what about, you're saying bigger prey items that are not there so much, but we've heard now of... Excuse the road traffic behind me. We'll talk about the road in a minute, actually. But geese, say, and bigger water birds. I mean, they're going to be there in the winter and autumn and spring. So surely the cats are going for those along that water's For sure, water's I have edge. found evidence of swan predation, but that tends to happen in the spring. And I think it's probably one of the first things that the cats encounter when they come down out of the woods onto the flatland. And also I believe that the swans, are the young are being driven away, so they're a bit off of their kind of... They haven't got a territory, they don't know where they are. But yeah, certain areas, just down in front of where I'm stood right now, 
in March, I would almost guarantee that I will find half a dozen consumed swans, killed and consumed, dragged from the water and eaten. So the swans, I think, yeah, they make up a big part of the mill. A lot of the other water birds are only coming in now as the cats are moving away. So they're opportunists. They'll take them if they get a chance. But yeah, most of the geese and what have you are yet to arrive as it is. So, But definitely swan predation, I found quite a good bit of evidence. Yeah, seen those. Very good. And yeah. definitely dragged. More than a, a fox could For do. Sure, yeah. But really, clinically now, just nice and tidy, yeah. surgical, just like a cat does and nothing like a dog. 100%, yeah. They're pulled into an area... I believe where the cat can sit down and eat it and see 360 degrees around it that it's not being crept up on. Yeah. And it seems to just drag them in the middle of a field, whereas an otter or a fox, would, as soon as it was on the bank, would start eating it where it was. It would not drag it. Some yeah. of them are 50 to 100 yards away from the water when I find them. So Yeah, we'll put a photo of one of those on the yeah, website for, sure, for this yeah. episode. Yeah. Now, as well as the traffic behind us, you can also hear Paul's dog, Spud, and my dog, Duke, and they're straining at the leash because they want their walk in the wood, which we're going to in a minute. And we'll see photos of them on the website as well. We've just taken a photo of this view. It's a spectacular view across Certainly the Seven is. Vale and into Wales. And I'd say the final point before we leave this spot is that on the road behind us, which goes along the Cotswold Edge, very close to where we are in January this year, 2022, Lady reported a lynx sighting on the local Facebook group and that was then quoted in the local paper without her permission. So it went to the local paper and some of the locals said, oh, you're sure it wasn't a Maine Coon or something? You know, and she really stuck to her gun saying, no, it was very long-legged, very wild, I saw the tufts, it was definitely a lynx. And then two years before that, a councillor from Wooten Under Edge was going to a council meeting at Stroud and along this road, about a mile further from here, he saw a lynx crossing the road. He'd previously seen a black panther in this vicinity as well. So he's had two sightings. He was very happy to be in the local press about that. So nice for a councillor to yeah, report definitely. it, because Frank Tunbridge and I both had councillors report big cats to us and say, well, you could have it for your records, but we don't want our name attached to it. But this councillor was happy to be involved. Well, he's head above the parapet, basically, yeah. yeah. But as you know, Paul, this area, it's got some tight, curvy valleys that are like big sort of bowls and amphitheatres. Yeah. And also, we, there's a stream at the bottom of every valley. It's a natural route to follow the stream, what have you, it's water source, and the water brings other animals. The cat might not necessarily need the water, but the deer and all the other animals will come down to that water source. And if you were in other countries where there are cats, if you were stood here in India looking out over the Ghats or something like that, it's the same kind of landscape that we're looking at. Yeah, with the sort of little rocky foothills, if you yeah. like. And we've got a few sort of little outlier, undulating, rolling hills of the Cotswolds here in front of us. And I know that John Bilney, who was on episode one of the podcast, who saw two pumas within view of where we're looking at, within this view we can see there are trail cameras out in places that John has got ready for those pumas he's desperate to <laughs> yeah. see again. And he will, I think. I think he will one day. Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't think we're giving a secret away by saying that on uh, Panther Britannia and on Britain's Big Cat Mystery, he's got a half-decent yeah. puma bit of footage sure. on a trail camera. He had six in a valley and only one of them picked it up. And you've got the roe deer by it as well for scale, and it turns. You can't quite see the head well enough, but you can tell it's a puma. You can see the scale yeah. against the roe deer. So good for John. So this area is part of the network of Gloucestershire trackers, investigators, of which sure, you're one, yeah, and we know who's sort of sussing out each area. And I think if you were anywhere, like I said, Rick, anywhere, this is the kind of landscape and environment. You know, the winds that come in here are friendly. They're not cold northerly winds or nothing like that. There's no easterly winds that are ever going to get in here, which most of nature doesn't like an easterly wind. Because of this kind of basin that we're stood on, it's never going to get her. So it's yeah. always going to be pleasant, warm winds and what have you that bring the, all the information to any animal sitting up here, really. Yes, the aspect, the topography and the aspect is yeah. good. Uh, the final thing I'd say before we leave and go to, to our woodland that we're going to suss out is that all along the Cotswolds in Gloucestershire, properties, whether they're businesses or land and horticultural enterprises and whatever, you have the same kind of situation. They'll be two-thirds down the slope in the pasture with the wood line just above them. Yeah. Tip us off about deer kills and big cat sightings. And it is mainly big black ones, black yeah. leopard, presumably, in this area. But you get the same kind of property situation where they're just on the foothills of this Cotswold edge. But yeah. the same situation all, all the time. Everywhere, yeah. The cat don't want to be sat in cover where somebody can sneak up on it. It wants to be slightly out in the open. So 
this would be ideal along the bottom of this edge now as the covers go in and autumn's come in there's less places to hide this will now become an absolute prime hunting area and it will be again bigger animals that they're hunting for and it will pull it downwards into the open rather than into cover there's nothing here that's going to threaten a leopard if leopards is what it is but in its natural environment, there are bigger cats and other predators like bears or whatever that would want to take his mill away from it. So it pulls it down into the open. And that's why these kind of like bottoms of these scarpments are such good places to find your food, prey animals. You're not going to see the cats all the time, but you're going to see evidence that they've been there. So yeah, it's yeah. a really, really good spot for it. Good stuff. The dogs are telling us they want their walk in that wood. So the next section will be in a wood looking at trail camera opportunities. Okay, well we are in our Cotswold woodland, about five miles away from our last location looking over the Cotswold edge. We've just making a little inroad into the wood and we've met the first stream in the wood. This wood is crisscrossed down the slopes by several spring lines and they actually go through the Cotswold limestone here. And no actual mammal tracks by the side of the stream that we could see, even though it's fresh water and quite muddy at the sides. The dogs have got all over the place and messed things up as well. Paul's, in fact, as I'm talking, he's looking at the... Horse's hair, I yeah, yeah, snagged hair on the barbed wire by us on the edge of the woodland. And there's a badger trail coming through, I think, under the barbed wire there. So, Paul, you would pass on putting a trail camera where this um, spring line crosses the path but obviously the cats are going to be here looking for water oh, for sources. sure yeah. it's a good point and i'm not saying that they wouldn't stop here but there are just too many entrances and exits really what we're looking for is something that funnels them through a certain spot rather than they can come down from the field here they can come up from the bottom along the path from left so there's a lot of ways in and out although everything's here a bit of water a bit of shelter and what have you the chances of you actually focusing your attentions and catching something on your camera are quite remote because of the amount of different entry and exit points to this spot. And I think it's actually too close to the, although it's a small little car park, it's probably too close to the dog walker's main thoroughfare and there's probably some more remoter corners of the world. If we walk in and get away, I mean, it's, there's a lot of signs around here of people yeah. as well as everything else. So I think, like with everything, the further away from the car park you get, the more natural you see things, isn't it? But what I will say, Paul, and it's nice to introduce you to this wood, because I've known it for years off and on. I've made occasional forays into here. Not that it's that close to me. I wish it was closer, but it has been very good for reports of big cats. Independently, at different rural shows and elsewhere, people yeah. have reported this particular wood. And I've also heard about filleted out deer carcasses in this wood as well. It's a lovely Cotswold, mainly beech wood, but also oak and ash. Of course, we have the ash dieback, yes. of course, really um, hitting our ash trees in Britain hard at the moment. Uh, but it lovely wood. It's a national nature reserve, so it's one of the top status nature reserves in Britain for its woodland ecosystem. Lots of spring lines through it, so lovely place to visit anyway. Only local people know it, really. I was going to say, it's one of those natural valleys. If we were stood on top of the hill looking across, you wouldn't know there was a valley here. It would just look like another one of those hidden Cotswold valleys. But yeah, it's an ideal ambushing. We're in the bottom of a very steep valley where we are. And for anything, where even where we're stood now, if something walked along the path now, we could jump down and ambush it. It, it is an ideal. So yeah, it is a brilliant wood, a brilliant yeah. focal point. And eventually we will find some places where everything points into one direction and we can actually set up some cameras and show you how it's done. Yeah. We'll stop at some trail camera situations that we suss out in a minute, yeah. but I'll just tell you one of the reports I had of a, a big cat sighting here. A lady at um, one of the rural shows came up to me and she didn't know about any history of big cat sightings here. She just mentioned this wood. She said she was in this wood and she saw a big cat, a big black panther, and she was delighted and relieved to know that other people had seen them here when I told her that. But she said she got on the phone, on her mobile phone, to her daughter and said, I'm can see a panther i just saw a panther and i want you to know in case i don't make it out of here <laughs> that's the first time i've ever had such a sort of alarmist um defeatist if i've never seen again yes yeah. exactly and her daughter apparently she said her daughter laughed at her and said mum keep your phone ready in case it comes back and you get a photo of it yeah so her daughter wasn't bothered about her no i mean 
a lot of the local people accept it as it's a very they won't talk about outside but yeah probably most of the people within a few miles of this valley that we're in now know if they haven't seen one themselves they would know nope. somebody that yeah. has seen one everybody but they don't want to talk yeah. about it they don't want to bring people to it's a beautiful unsport place we've come down a tiny little road past little cottages to get here and the last thing they want is hundreds of people coming down here because someone's told them there's big cats in the area just ruining their peace and quiet the people want the quiet as much as the animals want the quiet yeah. so and i can vouch for that paul because i'll tell you one other sighting quickly before we move on Another of the rural shows I did, a little girl, she must have been about 12 years old, just breezed into my tent and the stand. Her parents were running a stand a bit further up the, the aisle and she was on her own. She just walked in and she looked at what the stand was all about and she just calmly said, we've got big cats in the woods where I live. And I was bowled over <laughs> at her confidence and her interest. And when she told me where she lived, you'll see where we parked, there are some cottages, about four isolated, That's presumably right, old yeah, workers' yeah. cottages. Lovely spot to be. You must hear the, For the dawn chorus in May, April, May, it must be wonderful because you must be right in the middle of it. Yeah. But, yeah, it, it turned out that's where she lived, and she basically was growing up knowing there were big cats sort of outside her door. I, yeah, everything about it, just like we were looking over the edge of the Cotswolds a little sort of at the other location ten minutes ago up there. We're now in one of these deep crevasses, and everything is like, yeah, for a predator, this is where you'd want to be. Yeah. It's, it's minimal effort for maximum reward. Once the summer's over and all the crops are down and the young's all been killed and eaten and grown up and learned how to protect themselves and run away from predators, this is the next place where they're going. So through the winter, yeah, I can imagine just this path that we're looking down on now, I could imagine walking up here to see carcasses. This is an ambushing type of valley. So hundred yep. percent top place, yeah. And I will be coming back here again after this. Uh, Excellent. That's good. One of us needs to nose round it regularly to oh, see what sure, we can yeah. find. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. literally 10, 15 minutes away from where I'm now living. Yeah, excellent. It's ideal to take the dog, so yeah, I will definitely be coming back to this spot. Yeah. We'll move on then and stop at a trail camera location in a minute. Paul, as we're going through the woodland on one of the top paths, we ought to remind listeners, especially relatively new listeners, about how you got interested and uh, your first key sighting because that was back on episode eight and some people might not have heard that so just sort of two minute summary of your first sighting on episode eight yeah yeah i'd always i've been a country person most of me like fishing outdoors and what have you and i'd always been aware of the phenomenon of the cats but never ever had i encountered anything um i was staying in a little remote cottage in dorset nothing to do with being in the country but I was going to the supermarket to stock up on supplies and as I drove down the road through a gap in the edge on the opposite side was a great big black cat my reaction quite shocked me really because it was almost like a very delayed kind of reaction having seen the cat 10-15 minutes further on I kind of digested what I'd seen and accepted that yeah I did just but at the time it was just a total nah you're not exactly you know they're there I've heard of them it wasn't a, like a surprise to me when it popped up but the whole thought process just completely goes out the window so that was the first one and also like other interests of mine in the countryside had started waning and what I've heard there are certain things that I couldn't do anymore so Having seen it, I had to know what it was doing here, where it had come from and all the rest of it. So I started ever since then, probably 2015, I've been looking and looking and researching. And the more I look, the more things I find and the more you can sort of plot together little patterns and pictures and it's quite clear what is happening here. Yeah. And it's always the same environment, like the environment we're walking in now. I could go to the other end of the country and walk in a similar environment to this. And it would, the and, same sort of things I would expect to find there, so... Yeah. But back to that sighting, when you went back to the location, when you got over your initial denial, remember you said the dog re reacted? Yeah. Was that Spud at the time? That was Spud, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, Spud was not very old. I haven't had him for years back then. Yeah. I mean, he's with us now. He's had quite a checkered past, mm -hmm. so I don't know his upbringing, but he's a hunting kind of dog, so... Yeah. He is quite keen, and as he is right now, he's 100 yards in front of us, checking for everything. When I seen the cat, I decided to go back with the dogs. I walked into the area, my wife was with me as well, and I hadn't mentioned to her that I'd seen it. I didn't say anything to anybody. 
But all of a sudden, the dog that's up there cocking his leg on everything was touching the side of my leg and his tail was in between his legs. And even my wife turned around and said to me at the time, what's the matter with the dog? Why is the dog behaving like this? He wouldn't leave my side, he stayed with me. No matter how much I encouraged him to go and look around, he just wouldn't do it. And I mean, he's 50, 60, 70 yards away from us now, but yeah. I could not get him to move. And that was another kind of confirmation that yeah. something was in the, in the wind, whether that cat was still in that area and the dogs could smell it and I couldn't, or whether it's just residue of where it had been. I don't know. I was quite new to the situation, but it was quite clear that something that was in that area was frightening my dog that normally is not a frightened dog. He's full of confidence and exploring all the time. So, How did your other half react when you told her why you'd come back, when you actually broke the news to her? I think like, probably like a lot of our wives, Rick, they, <laughs> they, they put up with us and humour us and, and whatever. My wife has actually had a small encounter one day when we were driving in the van and we both seen what would be described as the rear end of a black animal disappear through an edge. Again, I didn't say anything. I said, you just seen something walk through the edge. She said, yeah, I did, but I'm not going to willing to see what it was. So yeah, they treat us probably with a lot more skepticism and they're not willing to take, and they like to take the mickey as well. Yeah, I think yeah. it's quite a good sport for your wife to rip the mickey out of you a little bit yeah. about what you're doing. And, well, I think they also set the bar very high on the evidence and the standard of photos they want to really prove it. They know there's something to it, but I think they actually act as a yardstick for the general public. There's no such thing as the general public, of course, but for the wider audience that's largely naive to these things, they need absolutely perfect footage, perfect evidence, and that's our challenge, of course. They kind of keep us grounded. Yes, Because when you come running in your house all excited at your latest blurry picture on your trail camera of a tail or something like that, it's your partner that brings you back to reality. And we do need it, because yes. otherwise if everybody just agreed with us, it would just become a very ignorant, one-sided kind of conversation. Yes, our critical friends, so, basically. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've got close personal friends who absolutely adamantly won't accept that there are big cats in this country. And that's fine. It's good to have those kind of constant checks on your reality. So we've sold into it. We don't need convincing. But we still got to be aware that other people yeah. do need convincing. Yeah, yeah. So we've got a buzzard mewing above us. And Paul, as we're walking along this very linear, smooth track, we're about a quarter of the way down the woodland. It's quite a slope, but there's this nice old trackway, cartway in the wood with this nice flat surface because the Cotswold limestone is, is flattened it, makes an, almost a sort of little roadway. Now, actually, this would be quite a good place for a trail camera somewhere because at, at night time, a cat would use a linear track this is like a, this. This is definitely an ambush. We've got the bank to our right as we're walking up. That's a lot higher than us. Any cat could sit there and this path would be followed by deer or other larger animals walking through this wood at night. They would stick to this path and a large cat lying on the side. Here we go, we just come to a run now. There's probably deer going up over the bank into the field from the wood. This would be if a cat sat up here. Also remembering that they go up trees. They got everything here. They could see, they could hear anything coming. Spud's just spotted a squirrel. That's why he's going mad out the way. You could probably yeah. hear him in the background. He's miles ahead now, yeah. Spud is, yeah. He's yeah. got a squirrel marked up in the tree, look. He's dancing around the bottom of the tree, looking very excited. Yeah, but also, Paul, I take your point about the cat going along the top edge of this path as a jumping off point and an ambush area. 100%, but, yeah. But they would also, just to get to A to B, like they do in their native countries, they would just walk along this path. Oh, for it's sure. the line of least resistance, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, why would you be bumbling through bushes and what have you, especially in the dark when all the people have gone away? You would just take a walk along this path, wouldn't you? And obviously yeah. their eyesight, their smell and everything's ten times better than ours. So, yeah, it may, it's like us, why we wouldn't go hopping through people's gardens to get from A to B when we could walk along the pavement. This um, beach tree that's slightly leaning over the path now, if this was privately owned and you knew that a trail camera was not going to be nicked, you would just strap one to here, possibly, looking along this path. I'd possibly put two on there, Rick. Yeah. I, or maybe even more, so they're facing up the path and down the path, rather than just in the one direction. And quite often when you put them in doubles like that, one camera will pick up all the activity and the other camera 
we'll get very, very little footage on it, yeah. which is quite surprising. You think, well, they're back to back. I just picked up some of these at the moment from one of my spots. And yeah. the one facing one way was getting all the action, the one facing the other way, nothing. So yeah. yeah, on places like this, I would certainly like to double up cameras and maybe yeah. even put a couple either side. So you formed like a little square or whatever, if anything walked through the area, yeah. you would catch it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if they're monitoring real leopards, uh, spotted leopards in India or South Africa or whatever, of course, then you can identify them by the markings, by the arrangement of the rosettes on them. And yeah. so having the cameras at different angles helps you do that. And that's how they monitor individuals that way. We'd be lucky if we could find the individual to monitor and keep <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. into that kind of category. But everything's so varied. And I think, like, yeah, the things are moving about so much more, aren't they? Now, Spadu's raced on ahead. To say that you're walking somewhere and there is a big cat around, do you think Spud would be alerted and give you a 100%, sign? 100%, yeah. What would he do? I would imagine that he would probably cower. At the moment, he's there, his tail's up, he's barking. There's a squirrel in the tree. It's probably, by the time we get to him, it's probably passed on. But I would not doubt, when he's just behaved like that, that there is a squirrel in the tree. He's just told me 100% there's a squirrel. And I think if he come running back to me and started clinging up to me with his tail down, I would be looking around thinking there is a predator somewhere looking at us. And in this little valley, Rick, if we're honest about it, if there was something lying in the grass 30 feet away from us up there on the bank, we wouldn't know, we would walk past it. Whereas the dogs would pick up on a scent or something similar. So definitely take Spud's advice on things in that respect. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, final thing while we're on this stretch is that I know that if I wanted to send anybody on a mission to be stealthy and covert and not be seen, it would be you because you just have that in you from your past experience and your, your whole behaviour in the countryside. Any tips on going stealthy in the landscape? With certain things, Rick, I mean, like at the moment we're not too bad, but shortly the leaves are going to be falling off the trees, which is a crunchy kind of, so we want to try and find the path that we're walking on with the least debris on it. Yeah. It's also wind directions as well, Rick, is a, is a massive thing. If we're going through the woods, we might not be able to smell these things because we've become used to soap and washing and all the rest of it. Whereas these animals in everything in this wood can smell us. So if the wind's on our backs, driving the smell toward them, they know we're coming at 100 yards before we ever get to anything and we'll see nothing. So if we can walk with the wind in our faces, then we're gonna see that much more. And also sit down every now and again and just stop and be quiet. And the woods will start, as we're walking here and chatting, there's very little noise going on around us. But I'm sure that if we did sit down for 10 minutes now and just be quiet, the birds would start coming in and singing. We'd possibly even see those squirrels that Spud's driving in bad. Yeah, nothing's happening because it all knows we're here. Whereas, yeah, the alarms have gone out already. 100%, yeah. yeah. We yeah. might not think we've done anything wrong, but we've given our presence away. What about footwear, Paul? Yeah, soft footwear, but good Gore-Tex boots. I never like hard boots or nothing like that. Yeah. I like a soft Gore-Tex walking boot, usually ex-military, actually. Why, why wouldn't you when the soldier's yeah. life depends on it rather than other... So yeah, good soft footwear, waterproof footwear as well, because in the winter, I'm going to be out plowing through everything and I'm going to be in a mess, basically. So yeah, yeah. yeah, I do need all that kind of stuff, but I don't want it to be clumping and banging and buckles and belts rattling, little yeah. things like that. So even just like zippers on rucksacks that can make a noise. We've got an aeroplane going overhead. Um, We've got an aeroplane yeah. and I think Spud's just found another squirrel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Okay, we're well into the woodland and we've at last found our first spot for a trail camera. In fact, we're not going to leave any because this is a National Nature Reserve. We do not have permission and for certainly for a National Nature Reserve, I would want permission. But if we were going to put one, we I think we would choose this location for two reasons. Paul's going to discuss that in a minute, but I would say there's a nice log pile behind us. And I think log piles are very good for mammal activity and cats to explore and it's the end of a track. There's a side track off the main footway and as Paul's going to say, mammals would carry on using this side track and dog walkers wouldn't. So, Paul, what do you reckon? Well, I would say this was probably a road of some sort years ago, Rick, like you said, and to us it's now impenetrable. 
But if we bend down and look, there's still a dark run through here where we would say that probably badgers or foxes or whatever, maybe even deer are using it. And it forks again up here. So we got quite a few different areas and it's all converging into this one little spot. And also we're off the beaten track. So if we were worried about our cameras being seen by other people, this is far enough off the main path that we could safely, and I would say that anything coming up here would use this way if it was going that way or coming this way. So maybe a tree like this one to the left, we could put a camera on that and it would visualize three or four different runs where all the animals are coming into the same place. And that's the sort of things you want if you can find things where they're forced into this as well, by sort of like water or cliff edges or things like that. But yeah, this is certainly like three or four different animal tracks all coming together. You got a greater chance of catching something rather than a, a good path for any animal is a good path for all the animals it's not just a deer doesn't use a path exclusively and a fox doesn't use a path exclusively if it's a good way of getting through the woods then they'll all use the same path and obviously by the fact that there's three or four animal runs converging here this is a good route for them to travel through the woods so yeah, yeah. this would be a, a prime little spot to put maybe one or two cameras up in a little circle around there maybe or whatever but yeah definitely there's animals coming through in different directions and so, my log pile, what do you reckon? You've got a wood pile. pile there, which is again going to have like weasels, mice and all that kind of stuff, even squirrels. And the abundance of squirrels in the UK this recently, it's got to be another food source. If a squirrel is isolated on the ground and not scooting up a tree and the cat can snaffle it, it will do. It's a small bite-sized yeah. snack, isn't it? Well, we've just sat and watched a video, Rick, by ourselves, and probably the cat was catching mice. So it's not always going to be a deer or a sheep or a large mill. They will take anything right down to insects. And this is not just in Britain. I mean, the video that we just watched where they were, it's clear that the cat is looking through the grass at night and it is taking mice and small rodents and things like that. It will fill its belly and it will give it a mill. So it's not always just about the big food items. And I think like sort of now we're coming into September time, the smaller animals, a lot of it now, the idiot animals, basically, have been picked off. Anything with anything wrong with it has been picked off now throughout the summer. So nature doesn't suffer disabilities or anything like that like we do. So anything that's slightly weak has been eaten. So now it's time to start finding bigger food items that are going to tide it over. Actually, you know, year on year, we find more deer carcasses that are suspicious for our big cat interests in the winter months, in the yeah. colder months. And I would say now... This is going to be the month when I would almost predict I'm going to find my first big kill, September. I don't even really look for it much in August or whatever because it's not there. I've never seen it. But from September onwards, I think, yeah, we are now into the time when one big meal rather than lots of small meals throughout the day is where it's going to. So, yeah, I'll certainly be up in this woodland again looking for deer carcasses and whatever that I think have been predated by cats. It's, a, it's an ideal place for it. Before we turn the mics on at this spot, we had a nerdy little conversation about trail cameras and the technology. And we were saying that obviously you need a fast trigger speed. They've got need to click in soon, otherwise they'll miss the animal or miss most of it. But a key thing is because these animals that are our target interest are going to be dawn and dusk and nighttime largely, is illumination length. So you need, if you're choosing a trail camera, the illumination, the beam at night, is crucial to try and actually get it because often they will trigger the trail camera beyond the range of the beam and so you won't she won't see much yeah. at all you've had enough tells rick the same as myself that we know that yeah <laughs> we've seen enough black tails disappearing out of shots so yeah the trigger times on them are essential even with native animals we get a lot of foxes just disappearing out of shot. We get a lot of deer just disappearing out of shots. So it's not 100% science that anything that moves near it is going to get caught. I mean, there's even been carcasses that have been removed from in front of a camera and the carpet's not been caught on the camera. Absolutely. Not so, saying it's always a big cat in oh that no, situation. Oh, no, I'm not saying but that, but something has come and removed yeah. a carcass. Yeah, and we haven't, the cameras haven't caught it. And the camera it. haven't picked it up. They're yeah. not 100% like people believe they are. Yeah. The, the last picture of a tell that I got on a camera, I think I went through six or 700 videos of cows in that same field before I caught 
a tail disappearing through the edge of what we believe yeah. was probably a black leopard. So. And that's right. That's when you and I set one up. And this was episode 28 uh, when, yeah. when um, the gentleman, the guest we uh, interviewed said he saw it veer away and go through a hole in the hedge. Yeah. We, you and I put a camera up. We set, we pledged on that episode we would do. And we've got the haunches and the, and the tail. Now I've got another one of a tail where yeah. the camera's clicked in too late. It just shows you. And But of course now the, most of the modern ones are wide angle, give you 120 if not 130 degrees rather than the 90 degrees of the older ones. So that wide angle helps as well. Even though it throws the image back, I think you've got more of a chance. Definitely, yeah. And, and also we're learning as well. I mean, when we first bought these cameras and we started putting them out, we've learned so much over the time, like, like we were just saying a little while ago, out putting them back to back. It's a brilliant thing and it's amazing how many one camera will pick up and the other camera will not get anything. Yeah. Use them in clusters, So certainly. yeah, definitely yeah. do that. And also it adds with the illumination. But if you do them, don't blind each other because they'll blind one another with their illumination. If you have them facing just directly toward each other, they will blind each other. Yeah. So it's all things like that that we got to learn. The sun coming up in the morning, the first thing in the morning when the sun rises, is a brilliant time for animals to be out and about. But don't put your camera looking at that sunrise because you will get nothing other than a blinding eyesight. For a couple of hours. Yeah. yeah. So there's a lot, a lot of things to do. I mean, this is a skill in itself that we're learning yeah. and honing all the time. And it's going to be a few years before there are resident experts on trail cameras in this country, I believe. At the moment, we're just keen amateurs. So we've all got a lot to learn from it. As we're walking on through the woods, just a little bit off topic, there are lots of hazel trees around as an understory and there's some dormice uh, traps for dormice monitoring by obviously wildlife groups that are involved in this National Nature Reserve and Paul you were saying that you see a lot of dormice traps and monitoring stations in, the, in hazel woods that you Definitely, visit. Definitely, yeah, everywhere I go and that's all over the country, different parts someone is monitoring whether it's because they're quite easy to catch and monitor i don't know but no wherever there's hazel woods i always find these small boxes hanging upside down on the bottom of a branch the mouse goes in and the door shuts and he gets caught and people weigh them well i think they were quite threatened at some point and now they're obviously making a bit of a comeback but there's so many people researching such a small little animal and here we are we're just passing some hazel sprouts aren't we yeah here? and what happens is that they bend over don't they that's why the dormice like them because they actually walk over them like a bridge it doesn't grow vertically basically yeah, yeah. you can walk along it i know the hazelnut is britain's favorite tree really we've done so much with it over the years from pinning thatched roofs down the nuts we used to actually harvest these woods every four years certain sections of the woods would have been taken and all the hazel the usable hazel the street yes. for coppice broom handles even and fence posts and that sort of thing i've actually got a flagpole on my boat as we speak that's made out of a hazel branch oh okay yeah, yeah because you've recently moved to a houseboat haven't i you? do yeah. yeah i live on a boat my dog's just found another squirrel yeah <laughs> as we've walked along talking about hazel trees and coppicing we've alighted on a little side quarry area off the track we can see an exposure of the Cotswold limestone bedrock there and we can see a buddleia bush that's grown in this little sort of quarried out area and another big wood pile and that'll be full of small mammals little rodents and things so a cat would check that out probably even snakes in that this wood pile is well like you just pointed out rick it's been here for years it's been taken back to nature basically the brambles the weed and everything has grown over it the wood's rotting down it generates warmth it generates shelter and there's food in there so for any kind of like mid-sized animal a squirrel rabbit whatever it's a brilliant place to spend the winter to sit underneath you've got cover you've got food and you got warmth, so yeah, they're, and they're just, nobody looks at them. We walk through the woods, we walk past that, our dog might cock his leg on it, but other yeah. than that, we'd pay no attention to it, but something would be living underneath that. It's a brilliant little micro habitat. Yeah, yeah. definitely, yeah, 100%. Yeah. yeah, I don't know actually, Paul, that I would necessarily put a trail camera here, would you? But it's still a wonderful little micro habitat. Oh, definitely, yeah. And it's, it's different things that people are, it, I mean, if, just because we're looking for cats, this might not be an ideal place for cats, but certainly other kind of wildlife would love this little spot. Even it's, though it's a scruffy part of the wood, actually. Yeah, yeah, and a part that most people would like walk past uninterested in, really. Yeah. Like the buddleia, like you said, that attracts butterflies, bees, and all those kind of insects. It's all part and parcel, isn't it? And that's attractive because of this rotten wood here. In nature, for some reason, purple flowers attract everything. And the buddleia is 
well, it's known as the butterfly bush, isn't it? So, yeah, yeah. Now, clearly, they wouldn't want buddleias overtaking this woodland, but one like that is a marvellous addition to the pollinators. See this little hoverfly? Yeah. Moth? Yeah, lovely to see. And it's all part and parcel. It's probably even grown out of a bit of dead wood in this pile because they are quite like a weed, aren't they? They grow on old buildings, any bit yeah. of derelict land or warehouse. Buddleias yeah. will be the first one that will start growing out of the cracks in the brickwork and what have you. So Emergent vegetation, I think, is the technical jargon. Most, yeah, good term. He might well have turned up with this other dead wood. A spore, a seed or whatever might have been part of this, but it's now growing and it's bringing life back to a dying pile. It's also just a nice place to see the bedrock of the limestone. Yeah, yeah. The small stuff at the top. Yeah. Down to the more solid, yeah. And holly and hazel growing at the top there. Yeah, we'll take a picture of this little bit for the website as part of our trail through the woods. And the blackberries are still in profusion in mid-September. It's been an excellent year for blackberries. I think more fruit turns up from the, in nature when there's dry seasons. Do you find that, Paul, over the years? And Duke is scavenging. Duke, my lab, is a bit of a fruitarian and he's just helped himself to three or four there. Well, I've never seen for... a dog eat blackberries like your dog, Rick, to be honest with you. <laughs> it's almost like he's a vegetarian as well. Yeah, he's got a quota because it obviously... Yeah. Well, well, you see all the badger poo at the moment. Yeah. The badger latrines yeah. are full, full of, of it, blackberries at the moment. Yeah. yeah. It's that time of the year, I mean, to me... The abundance of fruit often is an indication of a bad winter. I was just commenting last week when I was out at the amount of sloughs on the edges. Whether it's true or not, I don't know, but a lot of these old wives' tales and old farmers' stories, they have some relevance to... Right, well, you see, I've got it the other way around. I've always thought that it was nature compensating for a very dry season, so throwing out more fruit because it felt it needed Quite to possibly. compensate. Quite but... possibly. I, I don't know whether it's a food order ahead of the fact that the winter's going to be really hard. Yeah. So they, 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 all the berries are here and what have you ready for them. Righto, we've just emerged into a deeper part of the wood, which is more predominantly beech trees, less understory, lots of crunchy beech leaves and a bit of an echo in the surrounding terrain because it's again, we've got this steep-sided wood hugging to our right-hand side and we're talking about scent of trail cameras if we're going to put trail cameras up because we've just walked past some horse poo because this is uh, a bridleway as well as a footpath or being used by horses anyway and tell us Paul what you were saying about how you might use well, that horse although it poo. Although sound a bit gross to me a horse is a vegetarian animal it's not eating meat so it's not smelling like dog's poo or stuff like that so normally if I'm walking into a wood where I'm going to put my cameras up if I see a bit of horse poo I will pick it up and rub it on my hands to mask my scent from the cameras because despite what we think we're told that these cameras are invisible to the native eye and all the rest of it but our smell is not and I can see by the reaction of the animals passing my cameras even the foxes and the deer and whatever up to about two weeks after you set a camera they are very very aware for the first week they're probably shying off of it and quite scared something new is in their place. We look at it and we think, well, that blends in. Nothing's going to know about that. But no, it's the smell. And we were just talking about a conversation with officers who train dogs for the police. And um, I was told by a guy that his dogs could trail my camera five weeks after I'd left it in the woods, would be able to go in and pick it up. And this is a domestic dog, which probably hasn't quite got the same scent capacity because his nose has been tainted by being in the house and living with people as a totally wild animal would have. So we do think we're kind of like totally invisible and we're stealthy and all the rest of it. But no, these cameras, they make a, a, a minute noise that some animals can hear. We give off a smell that a lot of animals can pick up on. And so, yeah, we're, we're here thinking this is working on its own. Nothing's aware of it, but other things are aware of it. And it's another part of the, the game of trying to kind of outwit nature, basically, which is what we're doing. And we noticed, Paul, don't we, that the longer a trail camera has been in position, the more used to it the yeah. animals become. Oh, the footage gets better and better. Animals will stop. A couple of years ago, I had a deer actually lie down and give birth in front of one of my cameras wow. that had been there for a long, long time. So that wouldn't have happened within the first month of me putting that camera up. Yeah. They look stares right down the lens. There's no way in a million years that they're not aware. They act startled. In the past, I've made the mistake of putting some of my cameras a bit low to the ground, and I've actually had them grabbed by badgers and tore off the fence and 
yeah. and, what, and attacked, basically. They almost remonstrate, don't they, yeah. in front of the cameras about yeah. what are you doing staring at me in the face? So, yeah, yeah, we think these things are totally invisible, but they're not. The animals know they're here, and we're fooling ourselves if we think we've fooled everything with our modern technology, because we certainly haven't. Yeah. Now, we've just stopped because I want to point this out, because this is one of my favourite places to scout out as you're walking through a woodland. Now, this is not a very big example. We've come across a fallen tree, fairly fresh, and it's made a great root ball. Obviously, a much bigger tree makes yeah. a bigger root ball, and I reckon that you often find little mammal beds there, like deer beds, and sometimes you actually get a path between root balls. So I think root balls are good places to investigate for mammal tracking. Like you say, Rick, this one's quite a small root ball, and the hole underneath it's not massive, but sometimes these are big enough for people to get in and curl up and have shelter from the elements if you needed it. And also the ground underneath it is freshly exposed, so there's a lot of grubs within a couple of inches of the surface. There's a lot of food there. But yeah, if you were just out wandering and it turned to rain or whatever, lying under one of these root balls would be a good place to get out of the way of it. And, and definitely, like you say, we've had a look round and, and in some places we found hair samples on some of the bottoms of the roots and what have you. So yeah, definitely animals have been asleep in there. Yeah. So it's not just a guess, it does happen yeah. and it is an ideal natural environment for them. And if we look the other way, again, if we wanted to just set a trail camera up along this trail, wanting to see the mammals go along it and step over the tree trunk. Now, that is where they're delayed. The trail right, cameras need them to be yeah. delayed. It's, yeah. another, it's an object that's blocking the path and it's another place that they will stop. Also, what will happen over time is a lot of animals will probably stop and mark it yeah. as is something in their path. And the more animals that mark it, the more animals that come along and mark it. We often put a stone or a log or something in front of our trail cameras if there's nothing natural there. But this would act as a natural yeah. marking spot for things to come along. There's a few branches sticking up that yeah, anything would... would want to weigh on or mark. So yeah, it is a good little spot, really. The fact there are two medium-sized tree trunks across this path, the animals are going to have to slow down here. It's going to break the street, isn't it? Yeah, so a good place for a camera. Yeah, we'll take a quick picture of this and then move on. We just come along the path now and uh, in amongst a little pile of rocks here, there's a couple of ferns growing. You wouldn't notice it, but if you lift the ferns out of the way, there's a, a pipe that comes under here, which is probably an old culvert from years ago that would took water underneath this root. And this would be a big enough thing for something the size of a fox, a young badger, would spend a night in there. So even this little kind of thing that nobody would notice walking down the path, we'd all walk past it, never notice it. But that could own a reasonably sized animal and we'd all walk across the top of it without knowing it, it was under there asleep. So people say, where are these animals? There's lots of places for things to hide without us ever knowing. And that is a typical example of somewhere that large mammals could get in and sleep. And we could walk up and down this path all day long and never disturb them. So now behind you, Paul, following on the culvert is a natural ditch through the woodland. And how many times have people seen big cats using ditches? Because Obviously, again, they're semi-hidden and they're going to use them as a convenient trackway. This would be ideal because anything stood either side of this would not be able to see what was walking down this ditch. I mean, my dog stood in the ditch at the moment. He's probably 25 inches tall. But from a couple of feet either side away, he is totally invisible. So, yeah, as you say, it's a path of least resistance. It keeps him out of sight of anything around him and it cuts through the woods quite comfortably without you having to barrel through bushes and prickles and stingers and all the rest of it. So yeah, like you say, a natural culvert like this would be a really good source of animals of all sorts, just to go from A to B along here without anything in their way. Okay, next stopping point. We have got a lot of bramble scrub because the wood is flattened out a bit. Different understory again, lots of sedge, so it's quite semi-wet down here, but the thick bramble scrub is where foxes would lay up in and cats to some degree as well people a lot of mammals yeah yeah, yeah it would just be foxes anything could be 20 foot from us 10 20 foot from us in the bottom of this we wouldn't know maybe the dogs might pick up on it if it was kicking off a smell but i'd say this was an old quarry or something at some point because a lot of the big trees are missing and the brambles where they get in the sunlight through the gap in the canopy are taken over but it is a massive bit of real estate there's a bottomless kind of hole in front of us and it's just 10 to 15 foot deep of bramble bushes right in there. So 
yeah. a large animal. I mean, your Labrador stood there. He could disappear within 15 feet of us quite comfortably. If we chucked a ball in there, he'd be in. Yeah, yeah. and um, we wouldn't see him. We'd see the bushes moving a little bit, but we certainly wouldn't see the dog, would we? Yeah, and people have seen them coming out of little natural tunnel arches yeah. from these places. Obviously, they're not in the thick of winter. They're going to need something a bit more cosy. But in terms of good weather, hidey holes, I think bramble scrub is a very good layout spot for them. I've probably slept in worse places than myself in the summer, <laughs> Rick, for a night's sleep. Yeah, Great. like you said, it, it keeps a lot of things off you. It keeps you out of sight of anybody. Nobody's going to suddenly stumble across you if you're sleeping in there. And in the morning, you can get out of there and wander about. And around you is going to be your deer and again, back straight on to feeding and what have you. So yeah, no, this is a natural, ideal little place that if you've had enough for the day, you could just plot up and spend a couple of hours here and nobody would be any the wiser. Even though we're on the side of quite a busy footpath at certain times, you wouldn't know what was 10, 15 foot off the track, would you? And beyond that, beyond the scrub, we can see on the edge of the woodland fallen beech trees and some of them are a little bit semi-perched at angles and I think that's where the cats start getting the idea of oh I can actually climb up here they don't want to climb up these vertical some of these beech trees are towering vertical trunks without any limbs but they will go up trees if they can and ideal Rick is like opposite us is a steep bank leaning down to where we are we're at the bottom of a bit of a gorge but like you can see there's a couple of trees there one's fell and it's leaning against other trees and that would be a I mean, even me, an old, not very fit Alfie Blue, I would be able to get up that tree rather than climb, like you say, one of these vertical growing trees. Yeah. And from there, you could get up and it rests against a bigger tree. So, yeah, that would be an ideal place to just run up and sit in the V of that bigger tree. Again, totally out of sight. Nobody would be any the wiser that you were there. So. Well, just walking through and um, this little muddy wet patch in the middle of the woods, I don't think it is, but... It's a possible. You would investigate this one if you were looking. The size is pretty much right. It's fist size footprint. There's three lobes, what looks like three lobes on the back pad, which is again, there's a slight indentation that could be a claw, but it's quite a feline looking track. And this is a busy, if we was looking along here, push bikes, obviously mountain bikes, dog walkers, and people have come through here. But there is definitely a footprint in the middle of here that could possibly be a feline footprint i'm not saying it is it's just the sort of things that you're looking and you'll find them in the most unexpected places just because people come here it doesn't mean that a cat wouldn't come here and vice versa so yeah it's not 100 percent, but it's quite a good little footprint so. yeah i'd say against it is that it's really symmetrical so if you folded yeah. it in half on a vertical axis one side goes into the other and that normally means it isn't cat because they're sort of offset cats are rarely symmetrical like that but what it's got positive about a cat is it's really wide very round about the right size it would fit in the palm of your hand smaller size but um yeah if i was going like, to say any i wouldn't say like it's quite as big as a leopard footprint no say a lynx or something like that yeah the um, other thing paul it hasn't got a leading toe normally one of those front digits is more pronounced and jutting up above the right, other yeah. and that one hasn't got it that's back to the symmetrical point but yeah you're right it's got a lot of um ticks in the box for a possible cat maybe that back planter pad again isn't big enough they're normally proportionately yeah really big go on fella okay yeah we're just letting a mountain biker go past first person we've seen in the wood other than somebody walking whippets earlier on for whatever reason boxers bull mastiffs and bulldogs they tend to have rounder feet we're going to pass on that but it's a possible well, duke's now walking all over it anyway we're just walking down through the valley now and i, I expect you can hear that there's a, a pheasant alarm call going off on the side now this is nothing to do with us we're too far away from him we're on a footpath in the bottom and the pheasants up on the side so that's something else that if you're doing this kind of thing you want to listen to nature because that pheasant has been alarmed by something and it's definitely not us so he's just done the noise again now he's being tracked possibly by a fox a badger maybe even a stoat or a weasel but that pheasant is alarming so if you were looking for things you would follow up on that noise maybe even move out there to see what was causing it just sit quietly and watch the situation but there is definitely something that is triggering that pheasant to give off his alarm call and it's a subtle little thing that 99% of people might just walk past. But if you hear that noise, that pheasant is giving that noise off because there is something there that frightens him. Good stuff, Paul. While we've got the mic rolling on this bit, 
we were talking about grey squirrels and grey squirrel ring barking earlier on. Of course, we all know grey squirrels are uh, non-native and, uh, of course, we've become to adapt to get used to them and there is a movement to cull more of them, as difficult as that is, because it's not nice to you know, kill wild creatures, but they are, do cause a problem. Now, that cues a discussion about you being a master catapulter. <laughs> so tell us about your catapult. I'm nearly 60 years old now, just a couple of months short, and uh, ever since I can remember as a child, I've always carried a catapult in my pocket. So yeah, I do shoot squirrels with my catapult. Uh, a lot of people might not like that, but every time I shoot a squirrel, I've saved a number of native birds, and I've also protected a lot of native trees because they do an incredible amount of harm. So I don't do it because I'm cruel or spiteful. If I was forced into a situation, I could feed myself with a catapult. So small game up to sort of 15, 20 meters is, is always quite possible, yeah. And also my dog, he does he does like chasing squirrels. He's been walking through the woods here today. He'll mark squirrels and he'll point to them. And uh, it makes it quite easy because the squirrels are often looking at the dog for me to sneak up and get a shot at them. So yeah, it's something I do do on my travels and I do it because I think it's helping nature. Hopefully one day there will be a natural answer. Maybe the Pine Martin will be the natural answer to the grey squirrel problem, but they are a devastating pest that does need to be kept in check a little bit. So unfortunately I do do part of that. Yeah, and the, and the catapults you use, you've got plastic ones and self-made wooden ones, is that yeah. right? Yeah, well, we were talking about the hazels earlier on, Rick, and a hazelnut is a absolutely fantastic wood. It's rock hard. I've never had a catapult fork split that's made out of hazelwood, where some woods you've got to go careful if you took a willow fork. Willow's got a tendency to split, and if you're pulling the elastic back and it splits, it's going to hit you in the face. Yeah. So, yeah, your wood selections and hazelnut forks are absolutely fantastic for making catapults out of. The plastic ones any good? The plastic ones are quite good, and um, like with a lot of other things, they're generally made in China and they're cheap replicas that you couldn't even compete with in this country. I mean, the one is in my pocket at this moment in time, that costs six pounds from Ch and that was posted from China. So, wow. yeah, it, sometimes it makes it not really worth cutting a branch of a tree and making it all yourself. So it gives anybody a chance to pick up a catapult and have a little go if they wanted to. It's an old fashioned thing, but quite a lot of fun and it's not really that harmful. So you have an anchor point on your face that you pull your elastic back to and then you generally have a point on the fork that you would place over your target and that is how it works. I was taken to an archery on Father's Day by my children and I'd never picked up a bow and arrow in my life and when I went to the archery I actually won quite a lot of the different events. I had the highest score on loads of events and I'd never picked a bow but it's only purely because it was much the same as the catapult to shoot is an anchor point on your face a point on the bow or a point on the fork that is your sight line and as long as you're consistent with it your shots will always be consistent you're never going to be laser accurate but if i needed to feed myself i would be able to with a catapult yeah yeah you're careful you never maim and injure an animal hopefully. oh for, for certain yeah for certain and there's certain things that you're not allowed to do i actually buy steel ball bearings because to kill an animal with a stone is illegal so by using proper ammunition, it makes it legal. And I don't, like I said, I do it on a sort of occasion that the squirrels do so much damage. If I got an opportunity to take two or three out of the environment on a walk, I'm going to do it. Yeah. A, a couple less squirrels in the woods is a good thing, I think so. Fine, right, onwards to the end of the wood. But before we leave the wood, we do want to find one good funnel stroke pinch point place because we're always talking about that on the podcast and we haven't found the ideal one yet. So we're going to force ourselves to find this key funnel for the mammals to be rooted through where we want to put our final trail camera up before we leave. As we walk through the woods, we keep on thinking of more things to cover. And we've just remembered that we've both been involved in a student photography project. Isaac from University of Bath is a photography student. He's finished now and he did a project photographing big cat investigators and trackers. And we were both on. I was on with Radio Gloucestershire. Isaac came into the studio and had me on with the headphones in situ briefing the media. And you were photographed on your barge, Paul. I was, so yeah. Tell yeah. us about that. Well, I was put in touch with Isaac through yourself. I invited him to come and see me and uh, lo and behold he took up my offer and he turned up and 
he come onto my boat and uh, I didn't really know what to expect or anything else. I was quite uh, interested and curious about what his angle on things were. So yeah, Isaac did come to my barge and uh, he met my Rosie and Jim dolls, <laughs> which you'll probably see on his website. I expect Rick will put a link up to it. And um, yeah, we had a couple of nice conversations and what have you, and hopefully I did give him a little bit of help in his uh, project that he's doing. So yeah, I'd like to wish him luck as well in the future with what he is doing, so. Yeah, nice to have a photographer trying to photograph different investigators and trackers in different environments. Uh, did you take him out, Paul, and show him? In the end, tracking? no, we never went out. No. I, he, we, all the photographs were within my boat. I did offer him to come down where we caught the tail before last, go over the edge, because I had cameras still in the same hole down there, but uh, he was coming to the end of his project. I think his time was pretty precious to him, so we never managed to meet up again. But Yeah. And so behind you, on your barge, you have got the rag dolls, Rosie and Jim, which was a children's TV programme. And I know Owen, who's holding the recorder today, used to watch that when he was a kid. And me, as his dad, used to watch it, enjoying it as well, because it was such a clever little series. And you've got the puppets now on I your have, boat. and they are the genuine puppets, like, from the TV show. They cost me rather a lot of money when I moved onto a boat. My, <laughs> my wife told me that she'd like Rosie and Jim as a ornaments for the boat and I didn't realise I was going to end up having to spend £150 on a couple of little uh, teddy bears. Really worth it, yeah. But yeah, no, they are nice. Apart and from a stuffed Black Panther, which of course would have been even more oh, yeah, important, yeah. but other than that, Rosie Space is a do. premium as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, I know, round the corner there is a bridge and we're going to do our pinch point, I think, at the stream crossing point on this bridge. Okay, we have finished our walk and Actually, at the end, we have found the best pinch point because we're in a big, wide valley part of the wood and there's actually a trackway bridge across it and it is the perfect place because there's a couple of side mammal tracks as well spilling onto it and it is where you would put a camera, really. Paul, what do you reckon? Oh, definitely, Rick. I mean, if you look either side of yourself to the left and the right, those valleys, is so even from where we are now, it's probably 20 foot down to the bottom, maybe more, 30 foot. And like you said, there's runs coming down the bank behind us from the woods. There's runs to the left of us. There's runs coming up from the valley. So any animal that wants to cross from one side of this valley to the other would find it a lot easier here than they would by trying to go down through the bottom of this gorge, which is pretty inaccessible. And also, after about 8 or 9 o'clock at night, regardless whether you, what animal you were, you could come out here quite confidently, cross the gorge, and know that you're not going to get disturbed or seen. So it is an ideal crossing spot. Sticking out of the gorge next to us is the top of a telegraph pole. So it just shows how deep it is. And that telegraph pole's not anywhere near the bottom of that gorge. So so tops of bridges, whether they're little tracks over streams or medium-sized trackway bridge like this, are Definitely. the ideal funnel. If there was no public access here, Rick, this would be a brilliant place to put a camera. And yeah, you would catch a lot of animals coming across this path during the, from the hours of darkness. As soon as it, the people stopped, then the animals would take over. So yeah, this would be a brilliant place. Yeah. Now I've remembered, before we sign off, of one more good sighting we had here, right at the far end of the wood. I know we dog-legged back when we were there, but he was a guy walking his dog and he saw a puma out of the wood but coming into it. I remember he said his dog reacted first yeah. and, and then he looked up and saw a mountain lion, puma, cougar type cat coming in. And that was one where it was raining. And it's rare for us to get daylight sightings in the rain. But what's your take on that? The thing is, with things like that, we assume because our domestic cats don't like water in any way, shape or form, that cats don't like water. But a lot of these cats, I mean, if you look at mountain lions, where they come from, they find it hard being up in the sort of snowy, rocky mountains and want to be dry all the time. Their fur is thick, they got a good undercoat and a waterproof top coat. So I would say the rain probably wouldn't... If England's quite a mild environment up to some of the environments that these pumas, mountain lions and leopards all live in. Yeah, it might get a little bit wet, but it's not going to cause it any harm. And there's all the food and all the shelter here once it's coming back in. So, yeah, no, I don't think our weather is inclement enough to have a real negative effect on something like a mountain lion that lives in temperatures of minus 20, 30 degrees in some parts of the world. So Yeah, and that, that low sample size of people seeing big cats in the rain is probably more about humans not being out in the rain, whereas the cats aren't so bothered about it as we might imagine. Exactly that, Rick, yeah. 
Now, I think we better sign off. I know you've got to get back to your village before it's closed off for the fair, yeah. which means it's going to be almost gridlocked all day tomorrow. Indeed it is, yeah. Possibly even this evening. So, so. I'll bid you all farewell, but yeah, I've got to get back to before it's locked down for the night. So. Yeah, but great that you're going to come back here and suss this place out I, once I in a while, should be walking Paul. this on a regular basis, Rick, to be honest with you. If I'm not back here once a week, it'd be once a fortnight, something like that. Yeah. It's a nice small valley. It's easy for me on my own to find my way round, find that animal roots in and out of this valley, and hopefully get a couple of cameras and maybe even a picture of another tell. <laughs> well done, Paul. We'll look forward to hearing more about that. Meantime, thanks ever so much for coming on Big Cat Conversations. Not a problem, Rick. As always, it's been a pleasure. Very nice walk, nice afternoon. Thank you for inviting me. Well, as you know by now, we are asking for poems and limericks on the topic of big cats here in Britain. And following up our afternoon ramble there, Paul, our guest, has obliged with a limerick, and this is what he's offered. I was out for a little mooch, with my lamp, flask and pooch. I flicked on the beam, couldn't believe what I'd seen. Staring back was the uncomfortable truth. Thank you for that one, Paul, and somehow I think that would have been so much better with Paul himself reading it. But we missed the opportunity, but never mind. So poems and limericks can be emailed into rick at bigcatconversations.com. And I think just about anyone can manage a limerick. So if you struggle with poetry, maybe have a go with a limerick. Towards the end of our walk there with Paul, we were talking about Isaac's photography project. Well, on the website you can see Isaac's classy photo of Paul on his boat with a ragdoll puppet that we mentioned. And any of you listening who have young children or grandchildren, if they don't know the old TV series Rosie and Jim, I've checked and you can get episodes on YouTube. Rosie and Jim are two characters travelling and meeting quirky people on their narrowboat in the English Midlands. It's a great thing to watch with children, just a shame they never talked about panthers, because big cats are reported along and near canal towpaths sometimes. Along with that photo of Paul on the website, we've put a snippet on Isaac's photography project, and our words of the week are based on the title Isaac gave to his project portfolio, and that is a glaring of cats. A glaring is one of the collective terms for cats. There are a couple of other collective terms for cats and wild cats, and we'll mention those in future episodes. But a glaring seems to mean four or more cats, for whatever reason. If anyone knows, perhaps they could get in touch. Anyway, good luck to Isaac with his career in photography, and his website is linked to episode 83 on our website, so you can see his glaring project there. As we said earlier on this edition, if you want to hear more from Paul, he was the second guest back on episodes 8 and 28 of our podcasts. Coming up, we've been mentioning recent big cat sightings in Derbyshire. Those will be discussed in the next episode. We'll be considering thermal cameras as well for observations of big cats. And for that one, we'll have some interesting things to view on the website. Righto, we are closing out now. So thanks again to Paul, our guest, and not forgetting Spud and Duke for joining in. And a big thanks as always to Owen for taking good care of our sound recording when we do these outside broadcasts. Okay, we'll be back with you soon. Thanks for listening. Take care, everyone, and bye for now.